you mentioned incentivizing new minting mechanisms. Uh, they've sort of thought about it as incentivizing the end state. So incentivizing the use of IST somewhere on some external chain, which then pulls through demand for minting, right? So as there's some new DEX that launches or listing on a, a lending facility, then that, that will drive more supply of IST to get minted to, to go farm those tokens. So uh, it's really kind of pulling everything through and, and driving all activities. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. This show is presented by Chainalysis and Flipside. Uh, we're recording this episode on January 30th. We have a great interview on IST, a Cosmos native stablecoin built on Agoric by the Inter Protocol. Uh, and our guests this, for this episode are Zucky, Yusuf Amrani, and Rowland, who is the product director of Inter Protocol at Agoric. And so before we get to this interview, we are going to break down the latest uh, market happenings with Westy and Effort Capital. Uh, so Effort, I'll throw it to you first. Who do you got on the hot seat this week? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so my first hot seat are Bitcoiners. Um, not all of them, but there's a specific subset of Bitcoiners that are looking to censor transactions on the Bitcoin network. Uh, so it was just discussed over this weekend, but I guess there was the design quirk in Taproot, which was a Bitcoin upgrade done in 2021 uh, that allowed limitless Bitcoin data storage up to the block size. Um, there was a project called Ordinals uh, that was able to, I guess, exploit this the, the Taproot upgrade. Um, and it just went live this month and it codified and, and is allowing users to actually store NFTs, short videos and PDFs like fully on chain on the Bitcoin network. Um, and there's some OG Bitcoiners that feel that NFT transactions are, are illegitimate, uh, don't align with the Bitcoin ethos. They potentially can increase gas costs and stop from Bitcoin, uh, certain Bitcoin transfers from actually uh, being included in the next immediate block. Uh, in particular, Adam Back, who's like an OG, one of the oldest Bitcoiners back in the day and the CEO of Blockstream. Um, he's actually on Twitter saying that he, he encourages Bitcoin miners to actually censor uh, certain NFT transfers on the Bitcoin network. Um, and if you look at the history of Adam Back, he's actually like a censorship resistance maxi. Uh, back in like the late 90s um, and, and mid 90s, you actually can find him selling t-shirts that had RSA cryptographic code printed on them. Uh, and that code was actually seen in the eyes of the US government as like a weapon. Um, and he was doing this to kind of protest the US government from uh, censoring cryptography uh, export regulations. So I think it's really interesting the kind of mental gymnastics that Bitcoiners are doing. On one hand, they want to be censorship resistant, hard censorship resistant uh, money. And on the other hand, they want to also censor uh, specific types of transactions on the network. Yeah, this this one is really funny. I think that they, they deserve a seat in the hot seat this week because at the end of the day, everyone knows that Bitcoin has a transaction fee problem and this could potentially alleviate some of that. Although I do understand wanting to mitigate state growth and making it harder for full nodes to to actually operate because right now you can do that on a raspberry pi and if this becomes a regular thing then ultimately could hurt bitcoin's decentralized nature so i get the rebuttal but at the same time like it's an open source network if people want to build things they're going to build it and that's just the way it goes there's nothing you can really do about it unless you want to make a core change to the protocol yeah i don't know i think there's irony in the fact that NFTs could kind of fix the fee problem for Bitcoin, right? So, uh, you know, it's been heavily discussed that Bitcoin as a network oversubsidizes the amount of transaction volume it gets, uh, and the fees are failing to make up a 
substantial portion of the minor revenue. Um, of course, the halving every four years structurally decreases that. Uh, but the beauty of the four-year mechanism is that it's quite a long time uh, before that really becomes a problem. Uh, but it's about like addressing what will solve this problem um, rather than thinking like, oh, it's not going to be a problem. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not too bullish on the idea that like NFTs are really going to be what saves the day here. But uh, I don't know. That would be a, a great plot twist if it, it did come true. I mean, I doubt that NFTs actually become a big use case of Bitcoin. I do think maybe in the meantime, there's some trolls that might, you know, make some big NFT projects and try and uh, attack the network in some sort of way. Um, but at the same time, like, this is why Ethereum is great. Is like, it's turn complete. It's really made for anything to be built. Whereas Bitcoin had this like one minor upgrade in Taproot where essentially now you can do this and there's really nothing they can do, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, like the, the design standpoint. And like, I do think NFTs would stay on Ethereum and this isn't really a long-term issue, but it is, is kind of funny, like the different design models there. I think I read somewhere that, um, I think I read on Eric Wall's uh, Twitter thread about the Ordinal's NFT project. He uploaded Trump NFT cards to the Bitcoin network. And I think he said that his transaction was actually the largest transaction done on the Bitcoin network uh, since 2016, which is pretty nuts when you think about that. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. I know none of us are like super in the weeds of Bitcoin. Like we kind of watch it and, you know, respect it in its place as king. But it, like this actually probably is one of the more interesting things that has happened to the Bitcoin network in the last two or three years outside of Taproot. So it's kind of funny that uh, it's it's not really all over our timelines, but it is very significant, something to watch closely. And to kind of stick with the same vein of Bitcoin, but, you know, not not quite. But uh, I got, who I got in the hot seat this week is uh, James Presswich, the founder of Nomad, Nomad Bridge, which is a Cosmos-based chain that was trying to bring Bitcoin into the Cosmos ecosystem. He posted uh, a Substack and a following a Twitter thread, um, kind of calling out Layer Zero for a potential vulnerability in their model. Um, and, you know, the reason why I put him in the hot seat, whether or not he's right or wrong here, is mostly because... He kind of just came at Layer Zero out of nowhere on Twitter and opposed, allegedly didn't even like try to reach out to the Layer Zero team uh, prior to posting this. Uh, yet six months ago, seven months ago, in, in August of 2022, his project had a $200 million bridge hack. So uh, hot seat for just kind of going out there, screaming at other people when in reality, maybe you know, I got, we got to be working on the things that you're building before you go calling out other people. Uh, but basically his message was, you know, there's like a trust issue with Layer Zero because uh, the model that Layer Zero uses has both an Oracle and a Relayer, which are basically you can think of as two separate security systems, and they're very customizable. Uh, so you can make those two systems whatever you, uh, you as the application prefer. Uh, but the default setting is using two systems that Layer Zero itself has control over. Um, so you know if you were going to build a bridge, for example, you would most certainly want to take over one at least one of those two uh, systems, the Oracle or the Relayer, to make sure that nobody can compromise your bridge, given that that is, uh, you know, tends to be something that holds a lot of value. Uh, but the default settings in into what Brian from Layer Zero's response is, the default settings are there so people can easily access the Layer Zero technology, spin up some application that maybe doesn't have a huge, um, huge reason to pour a ton of capital into, uh, but they can like experiment with the technology build bridges between different chains or, or just communicate between chains, send messages of the, and things of that nature without like having to go build your own security design system uh, and really kickstart the use of layer zero. So kind of interesting that, you know, yes, he, he didn't try to deny that this wasn't true or anything. He's just saying, if you are going to build an application that's going to hold a lot of value uh, using layer zero, 
then yes, of course, you would want to take the Oracle and spin that into uh, a security model that you feel meets the standards that uh, that you need. But maybe you're, for an example of something that wouldn't need that is like, um, you know, let's say you're just like passing NFTs across two chains. It's like, you know, low value gaming NFTs. Like, you know, you probably don't need some custom security model here that's going to be super expensive uh, if what you're what you're doing on chain really it doesn't have a lot of value behind it. I think all of these bridge protocol founders should not be pointing fingers at each other, uh, especially with if you look at it, like almost all the hacks, all, all the large hacks that have happened over the past cycle are all bridge related. Um, they should all be working together to figure out like what is the right solution for the industry moving forward, especially when you have someone like Circle launching their own centralized cross chain uh, bridge solution, CCTP. Um, that is the real competitor that every decentralized bridge solution, general messaging uh, protocol really needs to be worrying about. They shouldn't be worrying about each other. Um, they, they really need to kind of, I think, build together and, and really just move this industry forward, um, especially with cross messaging and bridging really being the weakness, the weak point of, of the crypto ecosystem today. Yeah, that's a great angle to come from at effort. I strongly agree with you. I like at the end of the day, like everyone on our side of the rope is working towards a decentralized future. And on the other side, you know, you have a centralized entity that's actually bringing a solution to market that is going to have extremely good product market fit. And that's like kind of scary. We talked about it last week. You know, there's there's potential for KYC. Uh, hop in between chains. And, and yeah, so I agree. I mean, you see it too with the roll-up teams. They're always, you know, bickering back and forth around who's actually open source, who's, you know, furthest along in the, the ZK EVM race. So it'd be nice if uh, we could all just get along. <laughs> yeah. And even if there wasn't a vulnerability here, which I don't think there was, like, like you said, there's been so many bridge hacks in the past and it's just an obvious like place of vulnerability for funds. And yeah, you mentioned the, the circle chain as a competitor that's coming, as well as just IBC making its way out of the cosmos, as well as L3s basically having hyper bridges, as you could say, that aren't really bridges that are much more secure. I wonder sort of what are the future of these bridges? What do they look like? Synapse is sort of an inter interesting example because they're sort of evolving into a layer two and trying to do make like a cross chain AMM, things along those lines, which maybe that's the route a lot of other layer two or a lot of other bridges go, uh, where they sort of have to to pivot from being a bridge where there's a lot, of, a lot of hacks and maybe becoming something else. And so, yeah, I think as we go forward, like the bridge sector is going to be a really interesting one to watch, uh, especially as Circle uh, has their, their cross chain transfer. Yeah, definitely agree with you there, Westy. And I wonder if like the Sam, to your point about the the roll up teams always going back and forth, is this something that we're just like noticing more now, given that it's like a bear market and there's less exciting, you know, in your face number pumps uh, and things of that nature that really draw your attention in? Uh, or is there truly just like maybe everyone's bored and feels like they need to be yelling at each other these days? I've, from the perspective of the, the roll-up teams, honestly, I think they're all just a bunch of nerds like us and like they're really in it for the tech. So like they're really passionate about it. Like, cause you know, in the alt layer one season, you saw everyone just bickering at each other. Like, oh, like Solana's at an all time high or Avalanche is at an all time high, this partnership, that partnership. Like it was much more just price action driving the fight. But here it's, it's funny cause it's just people who love Ethereum and are just trying to do their best to scale it. And of course it gets heated over uh, ideals and, and philosophies that are held across these different teams. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of the bickering is like super technical. It's talking about like light nodes and full nodes and like different things along those lines where it shows like just the intellectual capabilities of these founders and like where their heads are at. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a lot better 
of like debate than you see um, that we had in the ball run. Yeah, I think that's a, a good spot to end that one. We covered it well, but I, I'll take the uh, the cool throne here. The first one of the week, uh, GMX bag holders. They uh, entered price discovery on GMX over the weekend, and today is Monday. This will come out on Wednesday, so in two days, and the market's choppy right now to down. So I doubt that'll hold true. But I just find it amazing that these people have been earning 5 to 10% just in ETH, not even including the escrowed GMX rewards over the course of the entire bear market. And now their like, native token that they're staking with is, is in price discovery. So that's pretty remarkable, really big testament to the, the design of the GMX tokenomics. Um, and they also have synthetics rolling out here pretty soon. So last week I highlighted GNS and that wound up being a pretty good call. It went on like a nice 50, 60% run. But uh, with them rolling out synthetics, um, I think it's going to be a huge competitor to, to, to Gains Network, considering their model is, is really capital efficient. They're able to support a, lot, a wide range of asset classes and long tail assets because of its synthetic nature. So I think with all of the TVL that's, that's in GLP for uh, GMX traders to trade against, I think uh, this could be a serious competitor and narrative over the next month or two as they roll it out. Nice self call on the uh, the GNS trade there, but but walk us through like the synthetics model. Does this give you the ability to bring like uh, like I know Gains Network, one of their biggest uh, their most heavily traded assets or the the forex assets they have. Uh, does that give you the ability to kind of replicate that with the synthetic synthetic assets, or what does that what does that dynamic really bring for GMX? Yeah, I was reading the docs a little bit earlier, but to be honest, I haven't kept up with it super closely. All I know is that they're isolating pools against different synthetic assets. So you're going to need separate LPs from GLP because they don't want to kind of make more systemic risk there with, you know, you have so many projects building on top of GLP already and they've already built such a cash cow protocol. It's like, why add more layers of risk here? So I do need to dive deeper into the docs, but uh, I believe that a portion of all revenue from synthetics trading will flow uh, some to GMX stakers, but a majority to LPs similar to the GLP GMX design as is in place today. Um, but yeah, uh, aside from that, I'm not super sure on the exact implementation of the synthetics. Yeah, I know synthetics as a protocol has really shot away from making stocks of synthetics. So I wonder if GMX goes the same route. I'm not sure if that has to do with having docs founders or whatnot, but I'd certainly love to be able to trade more stocks in the blockchain. I think that's just like an obvious use case that doesn't really exist. But yeah, going back to your first point, Sam, I think this really comes down to like the marrying of product market fit and a really good token design for both GNS and GMX. Like I have my qualms with how GMX is designed for like the long term. I think in order to book model where there's actual price discovery makes more sense. But in the short term, I think they've done a really great job in garnering that product market fit and really creating a community around uh, their product, as well as having a token that people can actually invest in and feel good about. And like you said, earn like a good amount of yield. And so I think we really need more applications like this that really focus on, well, first of all, product market fit for people that are, are actually using their app, as well as marrying that with like a really good token design and really thinking that through. Yep, strong agree. I'm actually writing a report right now to the listeners. I know you guys already know, but it's going to be kind of looking at the correlation between price action and fee revenue generation at the DAP layer. But then I'm also going to be looking at the layer ones, kind of like Ethereum and the amount of burn per day. Uh, so that should be interesting. I suspect there won't be much uh, correlation between the L1s and the the DAPs will have some correlation, but obviously with the volatility, it'll it'll probably be relatively weak, but excited to uh, to let that one go next week. Yeah, I think that's a good segue into my uh, cool throne this week, which is 
John Charbonneau. I hope that I'm pronouncing that right, but former analyst at Delphi Digital, now at his own firm, DBA, he released a, a model uh, for Ethereum this week. I don't know if you guys got to see that and play around with it, but it was really, really cool. Um, I mean, it basically looked at both the, the supply dynamics and the revenue dynamics of Ethereum and mapped it over time. But what was super interesting about this one, first of all, was, I mean, the formatting is super pretty. Any tra TradFi person who's looking at this Excel sheet is loving it. Um, but second is it married both of his skill sets, I mean, in Excel, but also like his ability to understand ETH's roadmap, like both in the next few years and like many years down the, the line. And so he was able to include revenue from both data availability and from the execution layer. With DA, he was able to incorporate proto-dang sharding and dang sharding and like the actual technical abilities of those two, as well as an, an enshrine rollup, which is like a plan way down in the future where the execution layer of Ethereum will actually become an enshrined rollup uh, within the protocol and basically be a ZK EVM, uh, which is basically enabled by dang sharding. Uh, which is really technical and most people wouldn't even think of to include that in a model whereas um john was able to and he has a lot of optimistic assumptions in this model i mean the price goes out to 2032 and he has it at sixty nine thousand four hundred twenty dollars. which i mean of course you got to put the meme in there but uh definitely overly optimistic and yeah if you guys get a chance i would definitely play around with the numbers there yeah we'll for sure link this model in the show notes it's incredible absolute shout out to john for this one we'll have to try to convince him to come on the pod at some point but uh wesley any like major takeaways from this like uh maybe spe specifically as it pertains to like inflation throughout the throughout uh his prediction period yeah i mean i didn't really look at the supply numbers i was more so looking at the revenue numbers specifically when it comes to like the new upgrades but his his assumptions had supply at like a two percent deflation um through like through 2032 which i think is a pretty optimistic assumption given that i think a lot of transactions will end up in roll-ups um but yeah i mean if he's right that's obviously extremely bullish eth i think I personally think in the long term, it's the supply becomes pretty even, maybe like slightly inflationary, but certainly a lot better than it was under proof of work. So that 2% number is pretty interesting because just recently I was like thinking through what will uh, the next bull cycle's potential deflation rate look like, just given you know, we're relatively flat right now. Uh, and it's pretty much max pain in this scenario. Like on-chain activity came as close to dying as it was going to come, uh, in my opinion, in the foreseeable future. Uh, and it didn't. And again, we were at like 0.01% inflation uh, annualized. And so I was like, okay, well, if we look at the last bull run, let's find the 90-day period with the absolute most activity on-chain. What were the base fees over that time? And then let's map that onto the proof-of-stake Ethereum world where issuance is much lower. Uh, and so that 90-day period was sometime around uh, the October and November timeframe of of 2021 and i mapped that onto the current supply model and you're like annualizing that figure gets you around like 2.8 percent inflation so that's kind of interesting that he's basically predicting a very busy network going out into this period but you know that, that'll be interesting because a two percent deflation rate is like massive right you think about uh like traditional economies in the physical world today you know they look for a, a positive two percent as like a healthy figure so like kind of like walking through what the dynamics of this these new digital economies will be with a base asset that is likely to be deflationary uh, is like a really interesting mental exercise to kind of walk through. 
Yeah, I think that's it, I, I totally agree with you, Dan. It's like it's tough to project, you know, what the ultimate burn's gonna be, but you do think you know, today you log on, you look at the burn leaderboard on your Dune Dash that you built, and you can pretty much guarantee it's gonna be Uniswap, OpenSea, potentially blur some random nft mint and maybe some random dog token that just launched like in the future there's going to be such a more wide array of of applications and l2s utilizing ethereum for you know whether it's consensus settlement data availability etc so really excited to see how that plays out but also just to the people listening i really really highly recommend checking out this spreadsheet because even myself who spends so much time in ethereum there's things in here that i'm like trying to back into in order to understand how john was thinking and like it's just helping me understand the actual Ethereum protocol even more than I already did before. So can't recommend it enough. Like definitely check it out and try and back your way into to, to kind of the assumptions that John made. I think that like the next iteration of this spreadsheet, which I commented on when he tweeted it out, I commented on his thread. Um, so I think the staking yield that he has there for the most part is like six and a half to seven and a half percent yield year over year, which is mind boggling, right? That's huge if, if, if possible. Um, but I think like that, that amount of yield would definitely incentivize more stakers to kind of flood, the, flood in, which would increase the, the ETH issuance, dilute the yield, and also change the, the net issuance overall from like two, two and a half percent, uh, net deflation to still deflationary, but like negative one and a half percent or, or somewhere on, on that order of magnitude. Uh, but I think like the next you know instance of this spreadsheet is actually creating like a dynamic, um, yield to staking rate supply, where if the stake if the yield gets over a certain threshold, you would assume that people are going to flood into stake to to catch capture that yield, uh, and then obviously if yield goes below a certain threshold, it's going to you know flow flow out the other way. Um, but I think long term, I think Justin Drake, like the the predominant ETH researcher, was really big on on the whole merge and and the long term calculations had like a long term assumption of about four to four and a half percent long term yield, which I mean today is relatively in line with U.S. Treasuries, but um, I think it's going to be interesting to see really how like how all these assumptions play out over the next decade. Yeah, Justin's got to run for his money here because his projection sheet is like kind of more like eh, I'll choose this number, I'll choose this number, and John's is like literally like all right, you got proto dank sharding, dank sharding, this, that, and the other. So uh, that that's pretty funny to watch John uh, kind of continue to develop as a Ethereum researcher. But Dan, I can kick it over to you if you want to pull up that uh, flip side chart of the day if you're ready for that. Yeah, for sure. As I'm getting that pulled up, though, um, you know, you mentioned one thing that I thought was really interesting is like, yeah, the burn leaderboard. Uh, and what I find super, super exciting about that is stablecoin co smart contracts tend to be pretty high up the board on on the daily burn as well as the all time burn. Uh, so, you know, I think the the current leader right now, I don't have the dashboard up in front of me, unfortunately, but I'm pretty sure it's the the last OpenSea contract, the Wyvern exchange contract um, by a pretty good margin. But on that all-time top five, uh, Tether is on there. And that's like one of, I, one of the things I think is most exciting about uh, just smart contracting pl platforms in general is that they don't have to use their, like you can send value in other forms of assets, right? Like you think about Bitcoin, to send you a million dollars, Sam, I'd have to literally send you a million dollars in Bitcoin and then pay that Bitcoin transaction fee. And the beauty of Ethereum is I can send you a million dollars in whatever token you please and pay the Ethereum transaction fee in ETH. Um, so yeah, just something that I'm like always really excited to see is smart contracts that are like, 
you know, value-based. So in this case, stable coins, uh, kind of like leading the way and being uh, valuable players in the Ethereum ecosystem. So this dashboard here is built by Abyss RA21, and it's on the evolution of Solana. So, uh, you know, Solana's definitely had its ups and downs uh, over its life cycle, just as most startups and most blockchains do as well. Um, but what I think is really interesting here is, you know, in a time when we see like DeFi is down significantly in terms of swap volumes down, and if we go over to like things like NFTs, then we still see kind of that same trend, right? There was a bit of an uptick over the over the beginning of the year, uh, and it, with this kind of like echo bubble or you know potential kickstart of a new bull market, if if they're in that camp. Um, and we've seen some more activity, but it's been dying off kind of in the last week or two. Uh, and that's, that's true across DeFi. It's true across NFTs. But when you go look at development in the ecosystem, you know we've, we're looking at uh, the number of upgrade uh, programs run as well as new programs counting. So we're still seeing that consistent trend of, of developer activity. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to see that you know, while you might see, see some of these use cases kind of dying off, um, you know, it's still a good indication that we, Solana has a strong health and a strong ecosystem around it. And, you know, ultimately developers are what pull in users to a blockchain because there needs to be uses for, uh, you know, those users to interact with. So I think it's a cool takeaway here. And a cool thing to flag here is this is actually Flipside's new UI for their dashboarding. So it's also like a coding environment and you can code uh, within this environment, but they also allow you to build dashboards just as uh, their old UI did as well. Um, personally, I found these dashboards much easier to interact with. So it's a huge upgrade in my opinion. They look a little cleaner, easier to interact with. Um, you can like hover over these you know, different parts of the chart to get some reactions uh, within the chart, which is great to see as well. And a great example of that is looking at the, um, the event numbers from all these different DeFi protocols. And you can literally see the rise of OpenBook, uh, which is like the serum, the decentralized version of serum uh, in, the, in a post FTX world. Like you can immediately see that starting to become a, a, a very core piece of the Solana DeFi ecosystem. Um, so again, you know, shout out to Flipside for making these things possible. Getting in here and working with the data is just getting easier and easier as their new UI gets built out. I believe they're deprecating the old UI at the end of February. So coming up on uh, having to just make that pivot over the, this new interactive way to kind of parse blockchain data. Um, and they also recently launched their decoded log stables for Ethereum mainnet. So you can literally look at any piece of information that comes on chain and, and digest it in a very, very easy way. So like, if you're looking to break into this, we have uh, a, 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 we're running a bounty right now with uh, the, it gives you the ability to earn some free USDC. Uh, so hop into the show notes, take a look at that. And uh, we'd love to get your, your take on anything you want to see uh, when it comes to flip side as well. So be, feel free to shoot us a DM on Twitter, uh, either Sam or myself or the zero X research account. And we'd be happy to kind of break down anything that you guys are, are excited to see in the future. Yeah, I also want to take a second to thank our other wonderful sponsor, Chainalysis. They are uh, one of the leading crypto analytics providers that are helping provide the tools that our industry needs to actually thrive and grow. Banks, Web2 companies, be it tech industry, supply chain, whatever it is, they all need to understand better how blockchains actually work. And Chainalysis is the company that's trying to get them on chain and actually help participate in, in, in moving the blockchain industry forward. They also just released a new product called Storyline, which is basically just a simplified way to visualize on-chain analytics, which I've found really useful for, for my own personal use. Uh, they also just dropped a new research report, which is uh, notable wallets of hackers 
um, and how they've been moving their funds across chain since the hacks that were carried out in 2022. So we can link to all that in the show notes. But again, I cannot stress enough to go check out Chainalysis. They are one of the leading crypto analytics providers and you'd be missing out if you didn't. Awesome. All right. Well, now we will get to our interview on the IST stablecoin uh, and inner protocol. Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. We are joined by Zucky, Yusuf, and Roland to talk all things Inner Protocol and the IST stablecoin. Uh, Roland is the uh, Agoric product director, uh, and Yusuf is the contributor to the uh, one of the contributors to the Cosmos Hub and sits on the economic committee for the Inter Protocol uh, itself. And Zucky is the the omnipresent being of the Cosmos ecosystem. We're pleasure to have him back and really excited to kind of d- dive into uh, you know what is IST and kind of like how that fully maps out uh, into the Cosmos ecosystem. So uh, I'd love to get a, a, a bit of a brief intro on Agoric itself and, and before we dive into uh, Inner Protocol and IST. So uh, maybe I'll throw that one to you, Roland. Sure. Uh, so hey, everybody. Uh, uh, Agoric is a layer one chain in, in Cosmos, and uh, we are driving smart contracting in JavaScript. And so that is the highest level possible description. Um, it's a whole lot of additional work that goes into making that kind of smart contracting possible. Uh, a lot of security layers um, and and ways to bring large groups of mainstream developers into the ecosystem. Um, IST or Interprotocol is the, the first product that's launching on top of Agoric, um, which is both sort of integral to the functioning of the Agoric chain, but also a product for the broader Cosmos ecosystem. Fantastic. And, um, you know, when we think about IST itself, the first thought that comes to mind for me is like, okay, over collateralized stablecoin, we see this uh, a similar model to used in by by MakerDAO. So can we let's start like peeling back the layers of the inner inner protocol itself and getting deeper into to IST. So Yusuf, as a member of the economic community, I'd love to kind of get your your take on what IST is and why it's important to the Cosmos ecosystem. Yeah, sure. I think like IST, what what we aim to to do with this with this stable token is basically to to become. Uh, the to, to be to become to cosmos what die is is uh, is to, to ethereum so a fully collateralized stablecoin with the uh, you know minimum minimum minimal price volatility so it flows into the cosmos like through the the ibc messaging uh, standard um and what's interesting is that we have a use case from the get-go uh because ist is used to pay gas fees on on agoric so for now uh, you know, we have a few apps, but like going forward, I, I think it's going to be like uh, uh, a driver in, in basically generating fees. Uh, we're still very early stage. Uh, we launched uh, last September, I think it was, uh, yeah, um, last September, end of September, actually. And uh, right now we're in the phase one uh, of the launch, which is uh, the, the, the PEG stability module. So we have currently three assets. Uh, each asset uh, has two bridge versions, so USDC, USDT, and DAI. Uh, so the bridges are uh, Axler and uh, and Gravity Bridge. Um, and so after that, uh, we'll launch pretty soon, actually, like next month or early March, we're going to launch uh, vaults uh, where basically you can mint IST to deposit the deposit of an over collateralized uh, IBC asset position. Uh, could be Atom, for example. Um, and for uh, the liquidation uh, on vaults, we, what we use is, uh, is basically a Dutch uh, auction. Um, so, yeah, Zaki, maybe you want to add something on, on this? 
Yeah, I, I'll, 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 what I'll, what I want to do is characterize the decision to launch with the parity stability module as like a technical risk management strategy, which was, um, there is a lot of technology that had never been run, uh, in a money moving setting, um, in the PSM release, including like the Agor entire Agoric, uh, VM, which is like 200,000 lines of JavaScript, um, it is a very sophisticated system for like isolating smart contract execution in JavaScript. The integration between the Cosmos SDK, the IBC layer, uh, the like the wallet handling Kepler signing layer, all of these things have been in development for basically three. I like I've been I've been basically working with the Agoric team on these things for three years, um, and so th these things have been long in development. Um, and then, but so while it was a risk management system. It's also interesting because right now what we're seeing in Cosmos is a huge, like a big divergence in representations of stable coins. Um, so like right now there's almost as much USDC bridged over Axelar as there is over the gravity bridge resulting in two distinct representations of USDC. Um, while I am working with the Noble team on the native Cosmos integration, that's just going to make for three representations of GB. You know, the standard XKCD, you know, there are 13 competing standards. We're going to come out with a 14th that unifies the ball. The actual answer is now there are 15 competing standards. Um, this is the state of stable coins within Cosmos. And the PSM release is actually up just by itself a product that allows multiple stable coins to easily be translated into one representation. And we are hoping that like teams within Cosmos will find that representation useful. So there's definitely a lot to unpack there, but that last point that you mentioned is, is like kind of viewing IST as a way to, you know, uh, repackage these variety of stable coins throughout the Cosmos ecosystem. It was just uh, scrolling through Twitter right before this and, you know, we could see six or seven stable coins that had great growth over the last uh, 50 or so days. And, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, how do we get one dominant stable coin within this ecosystem? Because obviously that st stable store of value is very important to, to DeFi users. Um, and so if we want, I kind of want to like keep going into like the actual IST model. So is it only, only over collateralized or is there also some like a, you know, the, the word algorithmic has been, has been stained recently, especially within the Cosmos ecosystem. But, you know, I do know that there's that BLD boost model. Um, so how, what are the multiple ways that you can uh, mint IST and how will that change with the release of the vaults? So I, I might jump in there first and I'm going to steal some ideas that Zucky actually gave me. Um, so Zucky, you can feel free to jump in if, if I misrepresent them. But I, I think one thing that the, the launch of the, the peg stability module made clear to me actually was that it, it will show the market sort of how IST can evolve overall, right? I, you, can, you can think of stable coins uh, as classify them based on how they get minted. Because the minting activity is is sort of one side, you know, you, you have holders of stable coins and then you have minters of stable coins. And the minting activity actually drives a lot of um, stable coin growth and limitations. And what launching the parity stability module first did was show that, okay, we have this one minting mechanism, which is effectively bring other strong stable coins in and back IST by some risk weighted group of them. But then we'll launch vaults as well. And that vault contract will get access to the IST mint. And then some portion of IST will be backed by um, this sort of vault system, which is similar to, you know, over collateralized MakerDAO. Um, 
and that can continue, right? So it will it will be up to the the interprotocol community, which is governed at, at a base layer by build holders, um, how they want IST to evolve over time. And and the way Zucky described it to me, which I thought was great, was IST can sort of consume all the useful, effective minting mechanisms for a stablecoin and put them into a risk-weighted grouping, which which is controlled by the elected econ committee. Um, and so because of that, it could evolve in, in any way that we want. And um, if we find that certain minting mechanisms no longer are useful or no longer interesting or have a risk profile that we no longer want, we can spin those down through the control of the, the individual minting limits, you know, not only um, at the sort of specific minting mechanism level, but at the collateral level, um, and, and really tightly control what backs IST over time. So that's that's how I see it evolving uh, at this point, and and hopefully sort of as that will be clear to to all other users too. Once we launch vaults, and now you have this new new method of minting IST. Right, and we kind of touched on this earlier with the you know with the release of Noble, the general asset issuance chain secured by the Cosmos Hub. Um, we already know that Circle is going to be uh, minting USDC through this chain. For me, like I would I, personally, I would I would assume what would happen is we'd really trend in the direction where that kind of becomes the the dominant representation of USDC uh, within the Cosmos ecosystem. So, and, you know, I'm curious, maybe Zaki, do you have an opinion on that, or do you think you know, this actual R bridge and the gravity bridge USDC will, will kind of stick around or still have a place within the ecosystem? I'm expecting. I mean, based on what we've seen from what you know perceived user demand um and what people say and what including the uh the ist economic committee has said is there's a very strong preference to switch to uh noble issued us you know noble minted usdc circle issued noble minted usdc as soon as it's available um and so i think that's going to be um but like one of the other things that i think having uh, noble able to do is that it also really opens up the scalability of IST um, because having the, the um, you know, having a PSM um, and, you know, it's, it, it's always interesting to work through the game theory, but there's, there's this thing where you need this, this ability to take a dollar back stable coin and, and exchange it for your, uh, uh, you know, peg targeting stablecoin in order to actually have stability under all market conditions. So it's a really important mechanism. And basically the scaling of IST, as you add in all these other mechanisms in, a lot of it, the scaling just comes from. And one of the things though, that like, I'm hoping, I, I really hope about IST is I think that Maker has gotten so many things right um, in the design of their stablecoin, which is why it has been, you know, a stable value basically since multi-collateral die launched. Uh, and since the PSM launched, um, it's been, you know, an extremely stable asset. It's been very successful. They got so many things right, but they're actually not in a great position to fully exploit the scalability of, of the, their protocol design. Um, they're constrained by just like being written in solidity. They're constrained, uh, constrained by like sort of being, you know, like, like, you know, multi-chain was never originally factored into the design. Um, and so there's a lot of things that I'm hoping that we can really take the learnings of Maker and like ramp the scaling in a way that, you know, Maker is, finds themselves constrained uh, in various ways. I wanted to add a point on uh, USDC, bridged USDC as, as collateral in, in IST. I mean, 
logically speaking, it's just going to like organically decay, right, in favor of uh, of native USDC. So whether we do it like through governance, like with a, a proactive approach, or just users basically getting out of uh, of uh, bridge, the bridge version, it's just going to like naturally occur. I think it would also be helpful, like, so Maker, obviously, MKR is the backstop liquidity provider for uh, DAI. So could you kind of walk us through the relationship between BLD and IST? Yeah, and, and I can tell that story. Uh, I'll, I'll tell a, a slightly shorter version of the long, long version of that story, which is that um, really the where IST came from was the desire for the Agoric chain to have a stable token for their gas token. And, and so that design has been around for four, four plus years. And um, really, IST evolved from that original choice. The, the nice part about that is it allows the chain itself to, to capture the growth of the economy through something other than transaction fees. And that is something that really um, was interesting as sort of tokenomics for build is, you know, how do fees generated by IST go to a reserve that could be controlled by build holders, for example. And um, so so that is one part of the relationship. Uh, what you mentioned was safety backstop. And uh, that was in the original white paper design. Um, and, and I think as we, as we evolve that, I think it will be up to build holders to determine what relationship they want to have with, with IST longer term. In this initial phase, the minting limits have been kept relatively low on purpose um, to make sure that, you know, we, we're not seeing a, a large breach or, or, you know, a bridge failure uh, for one of our backed assets. Uh, and so um, it hasn't really been discussed yet. And I think in, in part, it may may be driven by legislation coming up uh, in, in Europe and other places. And so there, there are factors like that to consider. Uh, but high level, you know, the, the goal is that Interprotocol and IST is integral to the functioning of the Agoric chain, is governed by build holders, and I would expect that it's in build holder interest to maintain that. If you can't tell, we love data here at Blockroots Research, and Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analytics company, shares this passion with us. We use data to extract alpha and find the next thing coming in DeFi, but Chainalysis is doing the gritty work and building trust in blockchains. To onboard the next trillion dollars of capital into the industry, we need to grow safe consumer access to cryptocurrency and promote more financial freedom with less risk. Chainalysis has some of the most comprehensive and reliable data in the space, and they use this data to power a full suite of their solutions that can be utilized by industry professionals. Best-in-class training and certifications are also led by Chainalysis and some of the brightest minds in the space. If you haven't heard of Chainalysis, you got to check them out, and we'll link to them in the show notes. I, I saw that you could potentially mint IST using future uh, staking yield uh, up to a cap, probably determined by governance. I guess my question around that with PTSD from the Terra collapse is once you get into that situation and you're you know borrowing against future cash flow that isn't necessarily fully predictable, and then you've also got BLD being denominated in US dollars, which is what it's supposed to uh, IST is supposed to be paired to. How would you? How, how are you looking at risk there, and and uh, how does that mechanism actually going to work? Yeah. So build boost, uh, which is the mechanism you're talking about, it's important to think that uh, medium term staking rewards for build uh, are intended to be denominated in IST based on fees driven from the protocol, right? So actually, what you're doing for build boost is borrowing IST against future IST earnings. Uh, and and sort of managing it that way. Now the reality is, in the, in the near term, 
those IST rewards will be small relative to you know the the standard Cosmos build staking rewards, and so it'll look to users a lot more like Terra, where you're collateralizing against the the owned asset, um, which is not not the intention of that design. So uh, I will say that 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 part of the design did get some pushback. Um, our expectation, though, is um, if Build Boost launches, it would be very tightly controlled, both in terms of a total mint limit um, for how much of IST could be backed by Build uh, Build Boost, and and also uh, in terms of sort of I'm going to say over collateralization requirements, even though that's not technically how we should be calculating Build Boost, but um, you know it you would take a lot of Build to to mint IST. I think the the general way people should look at Build Boost is as not as a even primary, like a, a, a significant mechanism um, for uh, for minting IST um, in any sort of expected future. It's really intended to help bootstrap the trans. Like right now, we sort of live in this weird world where people are paying transaction fees on uh, Agoric in Build, um, which is basically a world that like we don't really want to see. It's like not it's not aligned with the goal. But like the problem is, is that like if you have build, we don't want you to have to have a third, a second asset that you went out and bought on a DEX in order to, that like you went out and bought on a DEX in order to interact with the blockchain. It makes like, that would be, it, it sounds, it, it seems completely uh, 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 insane to kind of sort of be in this bootstrapping phase. So what we kind of want to, what we, what we're imagining a world is more is like people on board onto the Agora chain with IST, like people will uh, uh, potentially like bot, have IST and use it to buy build, um, to stake it. Uh, people will then have IST to do transaction fees. People who are staking build are like, oh, I need to like withdraw my rewards or something like that. I need to top up my IST. They push a button, they mint like, you know, a few dollars worth of IST just from that process. And it's like, it's a UX refinement thing about, how do you like massage your way to IST as the unit of account on the system? Because of like, there are these like awkward pieces that are always there. Like, um, and I, we find this like, you know, it's like, uh, we find this, this, this uh, with Adam, right? It's like, we want, like Adam was never intended as a unit of account in an ecosystem, but as a practical matter, there's, it's become the unit account, the process of bootstrapping a new unit of account in the system is like super complicated and we think that like build boost is like just a little polish on the ux there that might make a lot of difference as you imagine the scaling of the agoric system and and build boost i mean can can be seen as the, the tertiary uh minting method basically so you have the psm uh that is you know, obviously like something very important uh in the design and in the use case and then you have uh, vaults and so between those two, I think we should have like a pretty decent chunk of the total minting limits. And then, uh, like Roland says about Bill Boost, it's, it's going to really like evolve uh, in a controlled way, uh, where we, we carefully look at, uh, at the other like minting limits and the relationship with, between the three minting limits and just go carefully uh, about it and, and test, right? Like it's all about, uh, testing using the, da the data to, uh, to adjust and see, uh, where, 
you know, we want to to go basically. Right. And I also think that kind of like plays into the scalability factor, right? Because in a, a purely over collateralized model, you know, let's just say it takes about like $1.3 to mint $1 of the stable coin, right? So um, having these a new way to kind of like use a different, uh, these staking rewards uh, as another way to um, mint IST kind of even pr- helps, gives a, throws a bone to like the, the, the power users of the Agoric chain. Um, but, you know, speaking further on scalability, like, you know, it seems like that. So if we have these three different ways, where the one that's live today is the the PSM. So as we expand out into vaults, I, mean, I know earlier you mentioned that liquidations will be processed through this Dutch auction style. What does that look like in more of a cross chain world, right? So if let's just say vaults uh, are now live and you know the atom token is a is a listed collateral, uh, you know if I if I'm a liquidator and I'm purchasing uh, some collateral in the form of atom. Okay, well now I need to go somewhere to sell this atom. Uh, do you imagine that that will live in like a agoric native AMM, or will there be some sort of like bridge to or IBC transfer to Osmosis, execute the transaction, and come back to agoric? Yeah, so this is a great question, and and I think here it's it's important to sort of think about liquidation as an evolving product. Um, so we have the V1 that will launch with vaults. But the liquidator contract as part of interprotocol is separate and upgradable, right? So within the code, um, the EC can choose to use a different liquidation, EC econ committee, and choose to use a different liquidation contract. And so um, effectively, I see liquidation growing into a, a suite of possibilities where, um, you know, in the longer term, the system is looking at sources of liquidity, both on the Agoric chain and across chain, making choices about where it wants to liquidate. And unlike uh, Ethereum, it can actively choose, right? We don't need somebody sending a transaction into trigger a liquidation. That will happen as part of the system. It can make choices on its own about where to go, how to sell assets, and um, where those end up. Now, so, for V1, oh, and go ahead, Zeki. Okay, I just like, I want to like galaxy brain what this looks like, just because it's, it's, like the world that we're building and imagining is like really cool. Cause like you could imagine, okay, the liquidation module running an interchain query, figure grab it, grabbing from osmosis what the slippage is likely to be on, like what the slippage would be on Atom to IST swap. Uh, decide that like I need to liquidate this much uh, tokens, use, you know, Interchain accounts and IBC to like liquidate those or like swap and forward, which is another thing that Osmosis just launched. So like use an existing IBC protocol, liquidate what it could within the acceptable slippage limit, and then place the remainder in a Dutch auction. Yeah. So liquidations are about to get really exciting um, because where where this is going to evolve to is sort of what Zucky was saying, where the liquidator itself can make all these different um, decisions cross-chain uh, and um, actively choose to liquidate or sort through a, a list of potential capabilities that it might have. Um, where we are launching with for the V1 is a Dutch auction that MakerDAO has pioneered as, as effective. Um, and what that means, though, is that we will be looking for a group of third-party liquidators to come in and actively trigger those liquidations. Um, and so because uh, at launch, there won't be a native AMM or a native DEX on the Agoric chain. Those liquidators will need to liquidate either, you know, on Osmosis or on their favorite centralized exchange. Um, 
And so that will factor into the risk decisions that the econ committee makes around collateralization requirements and the modeling that third parties like Gauntlet might do to help sort of set those those parameters. Um, so, you know, the, the V1 liquidator really does, it relies on the, the tested MakerDAO model um, without flash loans. Uh, but then as liquidation evolves, I really see, you know, I'm hoping that the community comes in with all of these different ideas for how we might might bring liquidations in. Um, I have a couple ideas that I'm going to pitch uh, and see that I'm not ready to share publicly yet, but I'm pretty excited about. Um, as, a, as a teaser for those, vaults on Agora could be transferable, which means you start to get a whole lot of different possibilities for what kinds of interesting liquidations you could do or how the system could avoid liquidations to begin with. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. I What we're hoping for is liquidation becomes a giant community-led uh, effort to, to sort of figure out how how best we can deploy resources to make them more efficient. And so that's something that we'll certainly be looking into as as the system evolves, we start getting more production data. I uh, like one other thing that has been a general design philosophy in inter-protocol has been, um, again, following on lessons learned from Maker is that liquidations are kind of the thing to be avoided. Um, uh, we have uh, like Kujira with the USK stablecoin has kind of taken this design where they're like, liquidations are like a feature of the protocol. And like, it's almost like we're like, it, where it's like, oh, can you like, like, we want people making money. We want like, we want to build and like Maker very much takes the attitude of, you know, we want a liquidation to be kind of the, the, the worst case scenario where like liquidations are on are, are, are rare things um, uh, that ideally can be mostly avoided. Um, but, you know, also as, as tooling and around maker it, but like there is robust tooling also available for liquidations and like, we know they work and they are a part of the robust overall robustness of the protocol, including the ability to like liquidate it, you know, large scale, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, that both of these things are part of the vision, but it is, like we are going less with inter-protocol is like, look at how many liquidations we just did to ideally liquidations are somewhat of a rare thing. And you mentioned the econ committee. I, I think we haven't really discussed that in depth very much. Do you mind giving us a little high level overview of what that is? Yeah, sure. So that, that would be me. So we're a group of uh, six elected members uh, that are mandated by the, 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 the build community. Uh, so build basically is, is the governance token ma managing the the inter protocol, and so the economic committee goals uh, are to to reduce risk, to to grow usage, uh, and also like to mitigate extreme events for uh, for inter protocol. So to do so, we we manage the, the parameters of uh, of IST such as the minting limits, the, the stability fees, uh, the collateral ratio, the liquidation ratio. Um, and so, like, if I give you an example of a, of a recent intervention intervention that uh, the economic committee uh, did was uh, a few weeks ago uh, when we had uh, a lot of uh, FUD around uh, USDT possibly, you know, like uh, uh, losing peg, we we intervened and uh, lowered considerably the minting limits um, around. Um, uh, USDT as a collateral, and also uh, putting there some uh, some fees to uh, to discourage uh, usage, and so yeah, that, that's that's one of the example of the of the things uh, we could uh, we could be, we could be doing, and we we work hand in hand with the community with the build community. So um, 
when we propose, for example, uh, the, the whitelisting of an asset, it's it's a suggestion. Uh, there needs to be a vote going on around that by by the build community. So we regularly inform them of uh, of pretty much uh, you know everything that is going on with the, with the interprotocol uh, and the, and the, the various parameters. Um, and also, so soon we're going to be managing also the the, re the reserve pool uh, that's going to launch uh, you know after after vaults. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, maybe Roland, you want to add something on the, on the econ committee? Sure, I, I'll, I'll add something at the technical level, which is that the econ committee um, has built in control to reach into the contracts and manage parameters directly, right? So they have they have two basic controls that they they um, can use across multiple contracts. Um, one is to change the values of parameters, and so right now that 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 control is, is sort of wide open, so they could set the, the interest rate however they wanted. Um, it also is possible to design it such that the econ committee is limited so that they could set the interest rate between three and 5%, but not outside of that. Um, the other control that they have is more of an emergency procedure where they could pause the functioning of specific contract calls. So for example, if we see some issue with the Oracle price coming into the vault system, the econ committee would potentially be able to, um, or not potentially, they'd be able to come in and stop the handoff of uh, the vault system to the liquidator until that gets resolved. Um, so the econ committee is a really important stakeholder and constituency within the inter, inter protocol. And, um, you know, I, I think this this group that has been elected to, to start has been amazing uh, and really excited to see that, you know, not only are they, as, as Yusuf said, not only are they sort of in control of risk, but they are a key driver of um, growth as well. And so we expect moving forward, they also will have thoughts on designs for the protocol that will sort of go out to the community and, and get built by Gorg Opco or by somebody else. So, um, yeah. And, yeah, and, and been... we also, yeah, and we also, thank you, Roland. And we also, you know, into like a, I mean, it's still very early stage, you know, stable coins, like the space, right? The design space. So, you know, we're very open-minded to, uh, run some experiments with, uh, you know, with some level of controls and, uh, and 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 risk management, obviously. But I think the design space is is still pretty open right now. Uh, so yes, we've we've taken that route of of a, a fully collateralized stablecoin. Uh, but that does mean that you know we can't explore elsewhere what is what is being happening. And uh, and Zaki for sure is a is a key contributor contributor in that area as well. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, uh, one of the hats I wear in this is I'm on the board of this Decentralized Cooperation Foundation, which is a foundation that is supporting use cases of the GORIC technology uh, and inter-protocol. And specifically, uh, we expect to be doing like bounties and other other sources of support for uh, people who want to start taking these ideas forward um, on how to extend inter-protocol sort of once the base protocol is deployed. Yusuf, do you feel that the the use of like an elected subcommittee, if you will, within the DAO or within the the community has really helped uh, kind of push forward like the the ability to respond to decisions quickly? I mean, obviously, you know, Cosmos as a whole and really just crypto as a whole, uh, governance is a huge thing that we're still like figuring out, well, what's the right process here? Uh, so I'm curious to get your take on really how that's helped you uh, being a part of the EC really respond to these kinds of changes and, and help keep the protocol safe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think it's very important to to have a, a small team dedicated to that. And you know, like, I don't want to make comparisons, but like, I mean, 
you cannot govern a token like a stable coin uh, via public governance entirely. Like it's just not gonna work. Like, like who's gonna manage the the, the parameters? Like, are you gonna be quick enough to uh, to be there? Uh, and also like just competence, basically. Uh, like, I mean, on our team, like we have two uh, world class economists, uh, Jason Potts and uh, and Chris Berg. Uh, you know, like we have a variety of profiles. So each of them was handpicked uh, to basically like deliver solid performance. So we have someone, um, uh, Chloe White, who's uh, um, who's helping on, on, on policy and regulation. Uh, she's, uh, you know, following very closely what is happening in, in, in all the uh, U.S. government, but not also, not only the U.S. government, also elsewhere, like regulations, what's happening, how we should uh, be reacting to that, how we should also protect ourselves uh, versus regulation. Um, and so... This committee, I mean, this econ committee, it's a new thing for us. Like, right, this is our first mandate. And so that's also part of the reason why we decided to be careful with just launching the first phase, which is PSM. Uh, and basically, you know, just scale up our operations, get to know each other, uh, work more closely on, on requirements with Roland for, for VOD. So, like, it's, it's kind of like an iterative approach and careful approach where, you know, we go step by step, uh, and uh, yeah, that's it's it's been a, an amazing uh, uh, opportunity, like opportunity for for me. And I think that's, I mean, going forward, like blockchain, like if we talk like in terms of like philosophical like way on on governance, is you, you can't have everything, everyone, you know, managing everything. It it doesn't make sense. That's not like how the legacy system works, right? And so there is no reason why it would work differently in in, in blockchain. So. Uh, you know, like you need DAOs basically with small teams that are more agile, that can react more quickly, that have competence uh, and, you know, and eventually like can work with other DAOs, you know, like DAO to DAO relationship. Uh, and then, you know, in the back end, you have the community basically there uh, to make sure that checks and balances are, are there, but more like in an arbitrage role rather than a, you know, fully committed role where they're managing uh, everything. So I think like you have like two layers of governance, right? So the first one is community and then the specialized one is at the DAO level. And so this econ committee, I mean, we're not a DAO per se, but kind of, right? Like we, we, we manage the, the, you know, the, the same scope of responsibility as, as a DAO would, would, uh, would manage. Zaki had mentioned early on that the launch of the PSM was a, an important test of a, a whole stack of capabilities that hadn't been tested yet. One of those things was the Econ Committee, right? That, that was governance code that's written in the Agor Smart Contract Framework and is a really critical element to the functioning of the system. And we got to see with PSM, they're able to vote to change parameters. They're able to vote to um, launch, you know, it, when a new... PSM got launched to uh, allow DAI into the system. They were able to come in and change the minting limits right away. And so we saw all that functioning and were able to test it. And that then will get used for the much more critical role in vaults where minting, you know, the, the risk controls are much more important. And we also get to show that off from the Agoric perspective. We get to show that off to developers who want to come in and build their own governance because they can see how it got built with Interprotocol and, and sort of leverage that for their own smart contracts. Interesting. So I, I guess one of my remaining questions is, 
one of the hardest things for an over collateralized stablecoin is growing the supply. And it seems like you guys can kind of tweak the borrow rate in order to incentivize that. But in terms of integrations with other protocols, uh, is there going to be like any kind of token incentives in terms of the build token? Or how are you thinking about uh, encouraging integrations across Cosmos DeFi? So the Decentralized Cooperation Foundation has been uh, using its treasury to incentivize uh, 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 using build incentives to incentivize integrations around Cosmos DeFi. Uh, the goal of the DCF is to uh, promote sort of ubiquity of IST. Um, so we, as you know, as new DeFi things get spun up in Cosmos, um, we are we are typically deploying incentives uh, uh, along in in you know kind of everywhere is currently our strategy in in Cosmos. Um, also, open question about whether or not we should go beyond Cosmos. Uh, but right now there's just like so many DeFi things popping up inside of Cosmos that like we're pretty busy just, you know, keeping keeping on top of every single new DeFi thing on Cosmos that we need to like kind of pipe some incentives over to. And and one thing that I, I liked about the DCF's philosophy for this is you, you mentioned incentivizing new minting mechanisms. Uh, they've sort of thought about it as incentivizing the end state. So incentivizing the use of IST somewhere on some external chain, which then pulls through demand for minting, right? So as there's some new DEX that launches or listing on a, a lending facility, then that that will drive more supply of IST to get minted to, to go farm those tokens. So uh, it's really kind of pulling everything through and, and driving all activities. And Roland, I got another question for you on the on the technical side as well. So, you know, obviously with liquid the liquidation process, the price of the assets used as collateral is incredibly important. Uh, and what does the Oracle price feed process look like uh, pulling into and you know a new app chain built in the Cosmos ecosystem in a uh, a new smart contracting language, right? Like JavaScript generally hasn't been writing smart contracts in the past. So, does that play any um, influence into how this process works? Yeah, so the way the way we um, we approached the Oracle network was actually using uh, we we had a partnership with Chainlink two years ago, uh, sort of starting this process. And what we ended up launching was a decentralized Oracle network. And by we launching, I mean the, the decentralized Oracle network launched um, or is sort of in the process of launching using Chainlink software, um, using a um, one of the previous versions of their aggregation contracts that was rewritten for the Agoric uh, smart contract framework, which will go through a series of audits and a, and a whole bunch of testing prior to launch. Um, and that's the approach that we've taken. And now we, we know that um, UMI is sort of working with a new Oracle that has just recently, they, they've been working through, um, and there are other Cosmos Oracles. So I think that's something that we certainly would want to look at moving forward. Um, but you know, we've seen that Chainlink has been robust through through DeFi on multiple chains. Uh, and so that was the approach that we took for, for Vault's launch. Um, so that will also be, and this isn't the question you asked, but um, we've gotten a lot of inbound interest, you know, either to the EC or to the DCF or to, you know, just various parties in the, in the ecosystem for other Cosmos chains who want to be collateral for IST. Obviously, if you have a token, it's sort of interesting to you to, to be able to use that to collateralize IST. One of the, the primary limiting factors there will be the availability of robust Oracle pricing. And so Atom trades in a whole bunch of places. It has deep liquidity. And so that's an, that's an easy asset that likely will pass a risk framework uh, evaluation. Um, but 
thinking through how that evolves as some of the longer tail assets want to get listed uh, will be important. Yeah, and you bring up that interesting point around liquidity, right? So, you know, obviously there's centralized exchanges that hold some of these uh, tokens, like Osmo, for example, is recently listed on Binance. Um, but Osmosis itself is kind of like the liquidity hub at this current point in time. Current point in time, and so you know, if you like, if you simply pull up the, the Osmosis pools t- uh, tab, a lot of these pools aren't that deep. So it's kind of interesting to see like like the Cosmos ecosystem as a whole kind of feel to me, it feels like there still needs to be some growth around um, kind of like liquidity, de- liquidity depth, because you need a place to liquidate into. Um, but you, earlier you mentioned that like even the centralized exchanges provide good alter- like alternatives to to these liquidators to utilize. So how do you think about balancing, you know, ideally you'd want to keep that all on chain. Uh, so how do you think about balancing like, you know, What's pragmatic versus what uh, is the most profitable? So I guess I have, I have a bunch of thoughts here, which is one is I think that like the, you know, in, you know, in many ways, the, the Cosmos liquidity ecosystem has not yet recovered from um, the implosion of Terra and UST, right? Um, you know, we've gone from, uh, and like in general, it, it continues to be a struggle across the entire Cosmos ecosystem. Um, to build liquidity. Um, and, you know, we've seen interesting bursts of new liquidity sources coming in, like uh, what's going on on the Kanto chain right now is super interesting uh, and fascinating. Uh, but on the whole, like the Cosmos e- liquidity ecosystem, I view things like Noble launching and US- native USDC coming. I, I view things like the growth of IST, um, but also concentrated liquidity becoming more available. Um, the uh, for IST we were like I think the first uh, incentivized concentrated liquidity pool on uh, on Crescent, uh, which has had concentrated liquidity live for quite some time. Um, we have uh, concentrated liquidity is coming. So basically, concentrated liquidity will allow our ecosystem to use the liquidity that we currently have more, uh, you know, to allow for like less slippage uh, and more efficient markets as it sort of expands and, you know, order book decks is like also injective are also a big part of the story. Um, so that's like one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is better stories about onboarding, new venues. Uh, there are many pieces that are sort of working together to synergistically build out Cosmos. I was also curious, it caught my eye that uh, BUSD, so Binance's stablecoin and GUSD, Gemini's native stablecoin, um, they are not listed as accepted collateral types. Was that uh, intentional or is that like a partnership that maybe you'd want to explore further on down the line? Because I know Maker has a partnership with Gemini and and yeah, so that could be a, a good source for growth. But I mean, they're, they're not, the issue with those assets that you're talking about is they're bridged assets. Like you would have to bridge them, right? So um, like right well, now- Well, I'm not going to say that we'd have to bridge them forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but I mean, I mean, right now, as of today, right? So- I think you know USDC and uh, and and USDT right now are, are are fine, but yeah, we we had some talks, some initial talks within the Econ Committee to uh, to whitelist uh, other uh, stablecoins uh, in the BSM. But I mean, obviously, like it's going to be a, a much better a much better uh, thing if we can do it with native assets, right? And so that noble chain, uh, you know, I'm not aware of all the details. It's it's not been like fully announced yet, but. Uh, if they can issue directly on that on that chain, uh, BUSD, GUSD, and, and, and others, uh, I mean for sure we, we will want to to consider that, right? Like it's it add more diversity, uh, you know, like we we basically reduce the uh, 
you know, like more risk profiles in the PSM um, and uh, more use cases. And uh, so, yeah, so, but, but that's not for now. I mean, like there's not a talk right now, but soon enough, I think, I guess in a, in a few weeks or months, possibly, yes. Yeah, that sounded like a little a little hint of alpha, right? Given it's a general asset issuance chain, uh, Encircle is going to be the first user of USDC. It will be exciting to pay attention to, uh, you know, what other, you know, more centralized entities are interested in in using this technology and leveraging uh, what it's got. But you know, we've had a great discussion on really what what interchain protocol is, what IST is, and kind of how. Uh, you know, the teams are working to prol proliferate that throughout the Cosmos ecosystem, which, again, really is kind of has that whole of, of this one strong native stable coin that's used throughout DeFi and kind of pro can provide that stability to its users. You know, if you think about Ethereum, USDC, USDT and DAI have really become that like that three pool uh, of assets. And I feel like you could have the same thing within the, the Cosmos ecosystem um, with potential USDC, USDT except with now with IST. Um, so it's really exciting to kind of watch this team push that push that forward. Uh, and maybe Rowland, I'll pass it to you to kind of, to, you know, where can people find more about Agoric? How can people keep learning about uh, IST and the Interchain Protocol? Uh, yeah, so uh, for, for Agoric, I would direct you to Twitter uh, and also to our, our Discord. So I think Discord, agoric.com slash Discord should get you there. Uh, that's really the best place to, to chat with us on any deep level, uh, especially about things that are coming up or uh, ideas that you might have to help improve protocols. Um, we also, on the Agoric side, we have a long-running bounty program uh, where you know, a, a number of excellent builders have come in to, to start sort of building out lending protocols or other types of things. So please reach out to us if there's something interesting that you'd like to build, especially in the DeFi or NFT space. We've got a lot of stuff going on there and a lot of tools that you could use to build off of. Um, for Interprotocol, uh, Interprotocol has its own Twitter handle. Um, I think it's at inter underscore protocol. Um, and I, I think those are probably the best places to engage. It also has its own discord. Um, so yeah, please, please come chat with us. You know, I, I think we're, we're really, especially on the Vault launch, we're really interested for people that want to come help with liquidations, people that have ideas for how to expand different areas of Interprotocol. Um, after the Vault's launch, it really is going to move into a more open design space um, because sort of the, the V1 of what, what was promised is, is sort of going to be launched. And so there's a lot of open opportunity if you've got something that you'd like to build or that you'd like to drive forward. So I'll leave it at that. But uh, yeah, please come engage. Yeah, Yusuf, I'd love to get some closing remarks from yourself as well and maybe where people can find you and then we'll pass that over to Zaki to close us out. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly active on uh, on uh, Twitter. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, I think it's really Twitter. So Yusuf underscore uh, Amrani. Uh, so I, I, I tweet a lot about uh, the Cosmos Hub, the Cosmos ecosystem at large, and obviously uh, uh, the IST uh, stablecoin. Yeah, I could just, I could close this out. I'm Zaki. Uh, at Z-M-A-N-I-A-N on Twitter. It's the best place to follow me. Continue to do fun things with stable coins. Awesome. Well, that sounds great. Thanks so much for coming on, guys. We'll have to do it again soon.